vacation, like on a Tuesday afternoon, wearing a hat with a bunch of feathers on it, I thought, who do I think I am? You know, all these people got to be looking at me like, look here, look at this Richard Petty mofo over here. <laughs> Richard Petty? <laughs> but I don't know. Now I just, I've gotten so used to it that I don't even really think about it. And every once in a while I get a, you know, I get get a compliment on it and some of them be like, hey man, I dig your swag. Is it always dudes that talk like that? No, but it was a dude one time. It was in a gas station at 2 a.m. This guy goes, hey, man, I dig your swag. I dig your swag. I to like, be honest, Thank you. I give you credit for immediately knowing that he was talking about your hat. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because well, that might freak me out. I was wearing a hat. I was coming from, I was driving the bus home from a show, so I was still wearing my show clothes. So I had had on the hat and a, you know, a sports jacket, uh, like a, a sport coat. I was I was in my fancy schmancy zane attire so anyway yeah hey what, whatever gets you out there to the people you know if but it's 2 a.m at a gas station i have been thinking <laughs> about taking this hat in though for a an oil change you dude know? you I got think he character in that now. i think it's got plenty of oil on it it does have <laughs> you know i don't know how you wear a felt still in like the summer yeah I, how many fans do you have? I know this is a weird question. It's hyper-specific, but like mm. I sweat uncontrollably on stage mm. and I can't seem to get enough fans on me. And then not to mention the blowing on the uh, the mic yeah. from the wind. Do you <clears> use <throat> a bunch of fans? No, I don't. I don't really sweat. That's God. my that's my thing. Really? Yeah. I, uh, <laughs> I, I glisten occasionally, but, um, but no, I'm, I don't know if, uh, I guess I'm, what cold natured maybe or something, but I, I just don't get hot easily. And so I can wear a felt hat any old time. It doesn't really bother me. How interesting. My, my wife gave me a hard time about that at first. She was like, dude, that's like wearing like a wool sweater, like in the summertime. You can't do that. And I was like, man, I don't know. I would just die. I had Cameron make me a straw hat that was, you know, had some feathers and stuff on it, but so Cameron I didn't like it as well. Cameron's at Standard Hatworks. Cameron Waco. Morris. Yeah, yeah, I think we said that before we started rolling. Old Cameron Morris. Cameron Standard Morris, Hatworks. Standard Hatworks. And he makes hats for like freaking everybody. Yes. Yeah. Cody. How'd you meet him? Um, Is he in Waco? He's in Waco. Yeah. Standard Hatworks. And um, I, I just saw on Instagram where he had made some hats for a bunch of people I know. Cody Jinx and Jason Eady and Whiskey Myers boys and... And the Midland guys, and I was just like, well, yeah, I want a hat, you know. <laughs> so <clears throat> I think I just sent him an Instagram message and said, hey, I like your hats. I'd like to have one sometime. And he was like, oh, Is that man. your impression of yourself? <clears throat> he was like, man, I'm I'm a big fan. I'd love to make you a hat. And I was like, oh, thank goodness. I was hoping he would say yeah, that. Yeah, heck yeah, dude. So, yeah, so that was 2016 or so. And then uh, that's been my main, my main hat since then. I don't. That's my thing. Is like I, I'd worn a bunch of hats before that, and never. And this, uh, no cowboy hat ever looked right on my head. Until, Why? Until what do you think? We have a pretty narrow face. I don't know, narrow face or something. I, I don't. I don't know why, but most of them just look goofy on me. But then so do ball caps. So I was just I had to actually comb my hair for for like a long time. And for a while, I was even doing this kind of a, a poofy thing where I had to like, like 
blow dry it and put product in it. And God, it was a pain. The image of you putting, <clears throat> did you just, hold on. You just used the word product. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Product. <laughs> product. Well, hey, babe, are you going to the store? You need some product? Much. Yes. Could you pick me up my product? My product. That was a short-lived phase in the phase of Zane Williams, but um, you can you can see that look on my the cover of my Texas like that CD. Yeah, oh, like clean cut sort of. Yeah. Does that have a little too late on it? Yeah, no. That a little too late's on overnight success. Yeah, you're right. Aren't you by like a tree or something? Yeah, <laughs> with a borrowed guitar. <clears throat> that I I didn't think to bring my guitar on that photo shoot, and so we were at this restaurant, and they had you know guitars hanging up on the wall, and we asked if we could if I could use one. So that's like some cheap, like two hundred dollar Yamaha or something. But dude, I was in. Uh, well, actually, our backgrounds are relatively similar in the sense that, like, growing up, I didn't listen to a lot of country. Mm-hmm. Mm, listened to a lot of. Uh, I was a huge Clapton guy, Almond Brothers, Bob Seger, John Mellencamp, mm. bunch of Sting, uh, but never really got in the country thing till later into mm. high school and then in college. And uh, so I was going to college down in South Florida in, uh, I was probably like 22. Mm. And my sister was trying to do this songwriter thing out here and she had opened for you a couple of times. And okay. I think it like maybe at Love and War or something like that. And so mm-hmm. she sent me your stuff <clears throat> and it was pretty close to the front end of when I was starting to get more into Texas artists and country music, singer songwriters. And she sent me that one dude. And a uh, little too late was my jam. Mm-hmm. I was driving around in a freaking BMW in South Florida jamming little too late. Yeah. And I'd be trying to, I'd be listening to turnpike and y'all cool. And, like turning my buddies onto it. That's a damn good song. Thank you. Yeah. I, uh, I love me some Turnpike. They're great. <laughs> That's the takeaway. That's the that is the humble takeaway. Love yeah. me some Turnpike. No, dude, that's a jam. Well, thank you. I um, I love him just a little too late. Yep, I I think that's my most streamed song on the Spotify. And is it one, really? Yeah. And does I, that surprise you? Uh, yes it kind of surprises me it doesn't it doesn't now but i wouldn't have thought that when i wrote it but i I basically i've learned that people love a good like mid-tempo groovy danceable like song it's just a good it kind of it's in that sort of randy rogers ish uh sort of mid-tempo danceable tune true with a good fiddle part but i think you're being like humble with that because i think that song is better yeah it's mid-tempo and i get it from a groove standpoint that people would dig it but that song is like exceptionally strong but it's got a depth to it that i just wouldn't normally think that people would would dig into Mm. so that's the reason that it surprised me that it's as popular as it is because you have some other stuff that if it was popular i'd be like yeah that makes sense Mm. or like uh oh um 87 Chevy 4 by 4 Right. Which is a killer tune. Right. Somebody was like, that's my number one stream song on Spotify. I'd be like, yeah, that makes total sense. Right. A little too late kind of surprised me a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's, um, that's the thing is 
you know, you write all the songs and I kind of like them all equally. They're kind of like my kids. I love them all in a different way. And then you just put them out there and then some of them get popular and some of them don't. And I don't know. Can't go real high with the highs. So you don't go real low with the lows. It's true. I'm, I'm definitely very even keel. I, I will say that's one thing I, I never really liked about. That's one of the ways in which I don't fit in the mainstream is that the mainstream. And when I, I'm talking mainstream, I'm talking like big labels. Like and, top 40 stuff. Yeah. Top yeah. 40. It's, it's a, it's a world that's um, very focused on singles. Like what's the single going to be? they're going to spend millions of dollars or at least a million dollars on the single. And, you know, you got to get it up the chart and have a number one with the single. What's the single? And I've never been like a single oriented type of artist, you know, I've even of, in the Texas format. Cause you have a lot of that even here. I've had singles on the radio, but I always have a hell of a time picking even which one it's going to be. And it, it, it always seems like every time we go to pick a single, there's like no consensus. It's like my manager likes this. I don't have a manager anymore, but my old manager would like this one. And my wife likes this other one. And my band likes this other one. And the few fans that I've talked to like these other three over here. And it's just kind of like, I, I don't, I, I, I don't know. I feel like I'm good at writing, at not writing bad songs. So all of my songs are like, Good or Dude, hold on, I don't say that. Hold on, you're good at not writing bad songs. Okay, okay, uh, okay. So I don't put out crap, but you know, it's. I also don't know if I have like the, the you know, I don't know if I have that one or two song per album that are just like mind blowingly catchy and hooky and like a perfect single. I don't. I, feel, I don't feel like I normally do. So anyway, that 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 hurts you, I think, in the in the mainstream world. But it's always that's always kind of bugged me that you you know even just to pick one song out of everything, it's it's like in Nashville. So many times, it feels like you're betting everything on this one song. If it works, you're going to have a career. If it doesn't work, screw you, you're finished. But in a lot of that's ways, too much pressure. That's man. how their model works, though. I mean, they plunge a bunch of money into these people. They'll cut right. an EP if the first single doesn't work. I mean, think about the whole vaults of music that's been recorded, but they got shelved, right? Because the record labels say, "Not, nah, we don't want to sink any more money into this." I know. And so, and you know, I think it's a result of the business model, right? Because if it does take hundreds of thousands or a million or more to work a single, then yeah, man, you can't do that with every song. You get, you get your one or two and then sorry, if it didn't work, it didn't work. I, I don't blame them for not throwing even more money down a hole that has already swallowed hundreds of thousands of their money. But what it, the effect that it creates is that young artists get one or two songs that you get one or two songs, you get your shot. And then if it doesn't work out, then you're what you're canned forever. They just forget you exist. They pass over you for the next person. Like that's lame to me. But what to me I love about the Texas music scene is that there's a different business model where, you know, you're making more of a living off of your live shows and yeah, you make hopefully some money off of CD sales, you make some money off of merch, you make some, maybe a little bit of money off of some songwriting royalties. Um, but it's not so single, um, oriented to where 
if you have a good body of work overall, then, you know, you can just live to make that next record and hopefully make that next record better. And then you live to make the next record and the next record. It's, it's not about having some one mega hit or whatever, which I've never really had. I mean, even a little too late, like I says, it's my most streamed song, but I don't know. I don't know what it has, but it's, it's, it's nothing like earth shattering as far as the number of streams. Yeah. Has. But I would imagine it's millions and millions of streams. That's like a few million, maybe millions and millions and millions of streams. Okay. So it was actually more than I said. All right. Okay. More than <laughs> I know you were trying to be humble, but you actually overshot me. <laughs> One more million. Yeah. <laughs> but in the grand scheme of like, that's why I think, and I come from a different generation, but the internet, I think, is, you know, it's always a double edged sword. There's a good and the bad part to it. But when the heck, as an independent artist, were you going to sell? Probably combined with all your songs, people have listened to some of them. I mean, we're talking millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of times and like how often yeah i'll take a little bit more you want another beer sure yeah uh i mean how often just selling cds would you sell that many cds right or even play for that many people live you wouldn't even so in a lot of ways in the purest sense of just wanting to make good music and have people listen to it and maybe appreciate it take a ride with you uh i think that that's actually pretty powerful in the in the purest sense of making art and having people come along for the ride I agree with you. I, my opinion is that the internet broke the music industry and is now, now that we've sort of figured out how to use the internet, it's now basically making the music business and music industry better than it ever was, better than it ever has been, in my opinion. Because what, like one of the things we're doing with our new band is we're doing a... Um, thing on our what's, web. what's the name of that new band the Zane? new band oh it's like how long did it take him to start talking about his new band all right here we go uh it's called Quick the wild. also zane has a new book yes it's i'm a not new book out i'm not zane williams anymore everybody That's true. i'm yeah. now the wild the lead singer of the wilder blue which has or, some controversy in it as well the name of the band well, we are. We were originally but that, called. He don't let him country. do that. He's going to get into that in the book. <laughs> um, we were yes, we were originally called Hill Country for like uh, like what a few months or something. I was just messing with you. Don't Long have enough to, do to that. put out an album under that name. Um, a night a nightmare in and of itself. Oh, well, anyway, we getting back to the internet thing. Here's what I feel like happened is that you got you get you got. In the days before recorded music, you had basically patrons of the arts, and it's like, oh, Bach, if you're gonna, if you'll like work at our church, you know, we'll, you can make art, and 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 you know, you your your expenses are paid for by this rich church or this rich family or something, the Medici's or whatever. See, I'm so historical. I, I really, I really no, know hey, I got about. you, dude. All right. Bad news is about that is what if they die or what if they don't like your latest art piece of work and they decide to kick you to the curb, all right? If all your money comes from one rich person, eh, okay. Then you move on to recorded music. Now you've got this recording that you can sell, all right? That's pretty awesome. So now now people are selling these recordings all over and there was kind of a golden age uh, where awesome artists were selling, you know, millions of recordings and making lots of money and then they were able to spend make big budget albums and do all that stuff. Only downside of that was, you know, 
there were a lot of independent artists during that time frame who, you know, weren't on the major label for one reason or another, and they probably got somewhat left out. Well, now, then the internet came along and kind of messed up the CD sale. Uh, and so those went way, way down and, and streaming happened and now you got digital downloads, but it's still not anywhere near as much money as the CD sales used to be. And so record labels just like freaked out and they started like not taking any creative chances and just doing like the most boy band selling thing that they could okay, find. Okay, so are you just, saying this was like early 2000s yeah, kind of thing? Pretty okay. much. So this yeah. was like Napster years or when that was first starting to happen? Yeah, it's like I moved to Nashville in 99 and that's, you know, around the time Napster came out and everybody was file sharing. And Oh, Lord. I remember my, my brother told me, you know, he was like, I'm sorry, Zane, you you just picked the wrong career, man. There's it's the wrong You're time. never going to be able wow. to, to make money off of music ever again. It's yeah. It's... It can be converted into ones and zeros and it can be, you know, it can be copied and you can fight against that and you, they can try to sue people, but they'll never be able to stop them all. And so, you you, you know, you're just never going to make money off of recorded music ever again was, was what my brother was telling me in 99. And for, for all I knew, he was right. And the record labels were freaking out. And so I feel like they stopped taking chances and... You know, people, artists started needing to also have some of the songwriting money coming in. And so they started insisting on being a co-writer on all of the songs. And it's been hard on like pure songwriters in Nashville, guys that just write songs to other people. Like the outside, they call it an outside song if if an artist records a song that they didn't write and their, and their producer didn't write. Nobody in their immediate little bubble wrote that's called an outside song and outside songs these days still to this day are, are rare it used to be the norm but it's rare there's from what i've from what i understand the number of professional songwriters in nashville is way 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 down from what it was in the 90s say but anyway what i think has happened is that we finally got first itunes came along and then and you had at least a way that people could pay for a download. And you found out, yeah, actually some people want to do that because they don't want to have to mess with all the crap of like the streaming services or whatever. And they actually do want to support the artists. And if you give them a convenient way to do it, they'll do it. But downloads still the pain. Then you got, then you had the streaming thing come along and, and become more and more robust. And now you've got a situation, in my opinion, that's, it's not too bad where, you know, you don't get paid very well uh, for a stream on Spotify, but you do get paid for every stream forever on the lifetime of that song, right? Mm-hmm. So instead of $15 up front from a CD sale, and then they can play that CD as many times as they want, you get like, you know, fractions of a cent per stream, but you get that forever. So if you look at a legacy artist like the Eagles, for instance, I doubt they're selling very many CDs, Right. Even if we didn't have the internet, I don't think they'd be selling that many CDs. But they're getting, but people are streaming the crap out of that, their catalog. And so they're getting all of that money coming in. And especially as people transition from listening to the radio to streaming more, the difference between radio and streaming that a lot of people don't realize is that radio pays royalties to the songwriter, but not to the artist. Okay, 
So if you get that, I didn't know. So they don't pay like a standard mechanical royalty on the correct recording. Right. Huh. Radio stations pay money to ASCAP and BMI, who who parcel it out to songwriters and publishers, but not to the record labels or artists. All right. And, and the reason reasoning behind that was back in the day, like at some point in the past, you know, radio stations, their reasoning was, Hey, look, we're, we're playing your music and we're helping make you into a superstar. So we shouldn't have to pay you or whatever. But the songwriter is not getting to play sold out arenas and sell a bunch of merch. So yeah, well, okay, we'll pay the, we'll pay the songwriter. Does it make sense? It does. But it's not that way. My understanding is outside of the United States, there are a lot of countries where radio does have to pay the artist and sometimes the producer as well as the songwriter. But in America, it's just the songwriter. All right. Well, anyway, streaming comes as more and more people switch over to streaming, streaming, some of that income does go to the songwriter, but some of it also goes to the artist. So People's old catalog. If you're an if you're an artist that has a big catalog uh, that was getting that's getting a lot of radio play. If you're not the songwriter, you're not making that much money off of it. But now that people start streaming it instead of listening to it on the radio, then you are making money off of that. And so now, uh, what I think is happening, what do I know? It seems to me like r- record labels who are sitting on huge catalogs of recorded music. That is now being streamed more and more and more and more and more as more and more people start, you know, when they're having a backyard barbecue, they're, they're listening to music on their phone now uh, over a, you know, Bluetooth speaker or Alexa or whatever instead of the radio. Uh, then those, those catalogs of recorded music that those record labels own are starting to earn money from streaming. And it's not very much per stream, but if you add it up over a huge catalog... And it is a lot of money that's Absolutely. starting to come in. So what I think is record labels are starting to ease up a little bit and take a few more chances. And they're starting to not always insist on a 360 deal where they take a piece of your touring and your merch and everything else. It's starting to, they're starting to ease up on some of that restrictiveness. And then also at the end of the day, what it, what it means for an independent artist like myself is that if you build up, you know, a, a catalog of 10 albums or something and people are streaming that stuff and they have it saved to playlists and there's, it's just getting played every so often, however so often you're getting paid off of all that stuff. So it's not, it's not CD sales up front, but it is sort of passive income over the long run. Yeah. But it's uh, if somebody buys a CD for 10 bucks and they listen to it a million times, you got 10 bucks, right? Somebody listens to your song a million times, you get 4K. Right. Like on streaming. Right. Relative. So like close. But. Yeah. So depending on how it works out, it, it it could be more money, but just more way more spread out. Right. And then so what we're doing with the new band is um we are using the internet to basically collect money from our fans. And turn all of our fans who who want to do it into sort of uh, our patron of the arts by everybody just kicking in just a little bit. So it's similar to a, there's a website called Patreon, but we do it through our own website. And uh, oh, interesting! You yeah. don't use like a third party to crowdfund it. No. So 
So, you know, there's Kickstarter, there's Patreon. Kickstarter is sort of a one-time fundraiser thing to like, say, make a CD or something. And problem with that is then your next CD, you got to do another Kickstarter. Your next CD, right. you got to do another Kickstarter. And then there's Patreon where it's like people sign up for a monthly thing and you give them some, something every month or, yeah. or every so often or whatever. Um, and so our thing is more like the Patreon thing, but we, um, but we just do it through our own website and then that way we don't have to deal with patreon's rules and they're not so taking essentially a your fans are just paying y'all a salary to create yes. your art that they want you to yes and create. then we have an audio vault that's password protected for our we call them hideout members and we they get access to that audio vault where they can stream or download from their phone or their computer so so they're they're each kicking in you know, the minimum amount is like $5 a month or $50 a year. And they're, they're all kicking in that. And we take that money. And the good news is there's no middleman taking a cut. Like the only cut that comes out of that is, I guess, a transaction credit card thing. processing, yeah. Yeah. you know. And I think our website builder Wix, we do our website through Wix. And I yeah, think they, like 30, they take like bucks a month. Or something. a very small cut. Yeah. And then we take that money, we go into the studio, we make our music, and then we just send the music we upload the music to the audio vault and, and our fans get to listen to the music that they paid for that they helped create how fascinating and and what we can do that way is we can put because it's not exactly public it's kind of just our most hardcore fans i put stuff in the audio vault for our hideout members that i i don't put on spotify or itunes or anything yeah, else man. like like Brand new songs that I just wrote. I'll just dude, you are so on it. I'll just record it you're on freaking, my iPhone. You're, you're ahead of it because yeah. this is like goes into the whole NFT thing. Yeah, I don't know if you've looked into that. Yeah, have you? Yeah, heck yeah, yeah. But so on the audio of all, I'll just make a an iPhone recording of a new song and I'll stick it up there, and people can download it or stream it if they want. And I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't put that on Spotify. Sure, because I don't want just. I don't want some random person who's looking me up for the first time for that to be the song that they hear. Yeah. But for my hardcore fans who are like subscribed to our music and they're helping make our music possible, I think of them as being our record label. Yeah, man. It would be the and same. If we had as, a record label, I'd send them the new stuff that I it'd wrote. It'd be the same as your buddy sitting on the couch and you go, do you like this? Right. Like, but you can't do that to anybody because you don't trust their opinion. They haven't right. been there along with the process. But that type of fan, you could be like... You like this? What do you think about this? Right. And they, they understand it. They're there. Yeah. What a freaking cool thing to do, man. I'm not just saying that too, because I went down the whole uh, NFT blockchain rabbit hole mm -hmm. deal. And that's essentially what you're talking about. In the same way that an artist can, you know, like a painter, you paint a painting, but the first time that it goes for sale, they might get paid on that. But the, when that person sells it to the next person, there's no royalty coming back to the original artist. Right. So it's like, why couldn't, but it's all based off of scarcity. So why could a songwriter like you not write a personal song for a buyer? Like I will pay you Zane Williams or Wilder Blue, cut this song for X amount of dollars. I own it. I own the actual graphic identi identity of it, digital identity. Right. They want to sell it to somebody that's up to them, but then on like a blockchain, you could get paid a royalty for the time that they sell it. Right. But it's a scarce asset that only one person owns. I think it's fascinating for music. It is fascinating. Now that's, that, that is kind of a different thing than what we're doing, but, well, it, sort is of, but it is fascinating. I mean, it's, they're both, 
I'm saying like they're what you're doing. They're both using the could. internet to do the music business in kind of a new way, right? Sure. So like our thing is kind of like a. It's like instead of having the Medici family or some rich, you know, dude the somewhere Rothschilds. signing our check, right? It's like if you have uh, however many fans giving you just five dollars a month, it could add up to that. But it's a lot more of a stable situation because if if that one rich person doesn't like your new album, they can cut you off, or if they die, or their funding goes away, or whatever, then you're you're screwed. But if you if it's coming from a fan base, five dollars a person, any of those people can drop off if they want. You're gonna have it's gonna go up, it's gonna go down. But it's fairly, especially what I encourage our fans to do is just pick an amount that you can really just set it and forget it. And like that really makes no difference in your life. Like I think, you know, I thought five dollars a month was pretty I mean, you don't want to do that for everybody and everybody, but if it's your favorite band, five dollars a month, you're probably never gonna notice that that's gone. And then you just get all this cool music that nobody else gets. And we also give them like priority seating at our shows. And like we do some like special events for them only. Like we're when our, when our album does, when our second album comes out that will have been paid for by with hideout money, we're going to do some special album release things that are for hideout members only and stuff like that. Interesting. So they're, I think of them as kind of, it's kind of like crowdsourcing your record label, right? So instead of having a record label, we just have fans that are willing to subscribe to our music in return for special access to our music and some other special perks. And then uh, we don't need a record label anymore. Forget those people. Unless they unless they bring something special to the table, but we don't need them. You know? Yeah. And that's what's so beautiful about nowadays. Yeah. I think everybody was held hostage in the past, in my opinion. Yeah. And that's why I'm saying I think the I think the internet kind of broke the music business like in the late nineties, early two thousands. There was kind of a golden era before that, uh, where, you know, I think a lot of great music got made and, and there were big budgets and people could really chase their artistic vision and record labels. Some of them would take chances and stuff. I think that got broken by the internet, but I think what's taking shape now is a way that, artists can make music specifically for their fans and not be beholden really to anybody and use the internet. Obviously the promise of the internet has always been that anybody can, can reach the whole world, you know, with their art. Um, the, the problem has been is, is it's been hard to do that because everybody's on it and every it, there's so much noise. That's one of the problems. Another problem is that the, the main way that evolved to, to reach your fans was social media. And, and you're, you're at that point though, your fan base is exists on this platform that's owned by some company and they can do whatever the heck they want. Mm-hmm. Like they can shut you down and you got no, all your fans are gone. Right. Or they can, um, you know, like what Facebook did is they 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 got us all to get on there for free, and it was free, and it was awesome. Woohoo! It's fun. And then they were like, "Oh, well, if you're gonna have more than you know five thousand friends, you're gonna have it's gonna have to be a a, a page." I'm like, what's a page? Well, you that's what you're gonna have to do, man. Okay, all right, I'm gonna get a page. So then I get a page, 
this was, you know, like seven years ago or whatever. Yeah, but none of those friends translate over to the I page. think I was you're allowed I was allowed to do it one time. I was allowed to like make all my friends into likes on my page. But what happened was I was immediately cut off from all from like viewing any of their profiles because uh, we were no longer friends. They were just people who liked my page. Yeah. Right. So it sucked. It did it did remember at the time that I did that. Uh, I I felt like I had to do it. Facebook was forced me to do it because I had outgrown my five thousand f- friend limit. And if I wanted to grow any more beyond that, I had to switch to a page. But when I switched to a page, it was less personal with the interaction with with the people. And then what happened was they started. Uh, every time I would post on my page, fewer and fewer people would see it unless I paid Facebook money. Yep. And now it's to the point where if I want anybody to see anything on Facebook, I got to pay Facebook money practically. Mm -hmm. Like I have 60 some odd thousand likes on my page. And like if I post something, maybe a few hundred people will see it unless I pay money. And then if I pay like, you'd be surprised. I have to pay like a hundred bucks and then like, what, like 5,000 people will see it or 10,000. How do you really quantify that? And at that point, it's like, it's not even your fan base. It's just your, you're like, you have to pay Facebook to, to access your own fan base. Weird. Very weird. Forget those people, dude. Forget Facebook. Forget them. And you, you know what? They have no customer service, dude. If you're gonna take my money for some <laughs> That's bull, true. to read to talk to my gonna, own fans, totally. Then at least freaking pick up the phone hey, when I need to talk to you about a problem on one. my page. But they don't. Here's the you scam. cannot talk to a human <laughs> being. I don't know if there's any human <laughs> beings that work there. Hey, here's the scam that they're running now. Is you run the the paid advertisement, but then they tell you that the transaction didn't go through. And then so it says you're going to have to try again. So you try again. That one doesn't go through. You try again. That one doesn't go through. And then finally I do one. It goes through. And what I discover when I go back the next day and I look at the ad, like the advertisement, I see that there's four. Oh, snap. And I have to go and cancel the previous three because I just hit it like five times in a row. But they actually went through. They basically just lied to me. And so I just spent for that advertisement that I'm spending 20 bucks for. I just spent like an extra four bucks for those other ones that all of a sudden you're famous. You didn't even mean to do it. No, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah totally. Yeah. And it's like, you're like, but why are there 3,000 people at this show? <laughs> yeah, right. If yeah, only, I wish. If only, no, yeah, I know. No if, wish. if only it was that easy. It's like, oh, I, I just clicked the, the boost button too dude, many times. Dude. Talking to people where the, where it's like, man, I'm just really hustling. And I'm hoping you know some people are going to come after this one. And they're like, did you post? And I'm like, yes, I posted. And they're like, did you did, did you, you boost? <laughs> it's like, uh, wait, is that the grapefruit flavored stuff that I'm supposed to drink every day? I don't know. Yeah, I. I no, 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 it's I, Facebook. Oh, yeah. Spark boost, whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I did it. It's some uh, pyramid scheme. Yeah, you're supposed to drink the energy drink. So moving up into this new band that you developed, before we started, we were talking about the nightmare that it is trying to get a band together, people that you like to play together with. What was that process with some of these guys? Because you have some some dudes that are not easy to get in in a band. 
Yeah. So about a, a few years ago, I was kind of leveling. I felt like my career was kind of leveling off and I was like in danger of just becoming a B-level red dirt party band for the rest of my life. And that's not really what I got into music to be. I was kind of playing the same old venues uh, for like either the same size crowd or maybe even a little smaller. And then I lost some of my band members to better paying gigs. And then a couple of them just got tired of, you know, being on the road for not very much pay. There's only so much like sleeping in a van and stuff that people can deal with. <clears throat> after seven or eight years of stuff, it gets old, dude. After seven or eight years, 10 years, whatever, it gets old. It can get old. And so I'm sitting there thinking, man, I want, I want to like make a better record than I've ever made. And I want to have a better band than I've ever had. But like, how do I, you know, how do I get there? And I kind of felt like, it occurred to me one day that I that I might ha at this point in my career at least have a certain capital as a songwriter, maybe some respect in the scene. Oh, and there's I, no doubt about that. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I thought, all right, well, you know, why shouldn't I have like this badass band then? If I'm a if I'm a if I'm a great song, singer songwriter, why shouldn't I have a band that's equally as good? The the thing is, is that a lot of them were already paying, playing. If like, if you're talking about somebody that can maybe play multiple instruments and maybe sing, maybe even write songs and they're, <clears throat> they're not an asshole. I mean, they're dude, they're already, they already have a gig. They already have a game. Oh, yeah. Or they don't exist. They already probably have a good, yeah. Just like a unicorn. <clears throat> they're very rare and they already have a great gig. I mean, there, there were, that's another thing that happened was there were, there were some multi-talented people who I would have liked to hire, um, like, uh, Jake who plays for Cody Johnson. I mean, he plays lead guitar, mandolin, banjo, uh, he's banjo champion he's and, and he sings great. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wanted to hire, he quit the Sam Riggs gig. Like, I don't know. This was like a long time That's ago. interesting. I didn't know he played with yeah. Sam Riggs. Yeah. What he was like 18 fit. or something. I know it was weird. Whoa. So he, well, but I guess at that time, like Sam was probably playing a little bit more reserved type yeah. stuff. It probably wasn't quite the rock Somewhat, show. but yeah. it was still, you know, it was still rock, very rock leaning. And so, yeah, Jake was like 19 or something and he quit that gig. Huh. And, you know, I... Uh, had just hired Mike Tuck um, as my guitar player, and Mike's awesome too. I didn't have enough money. I knew Jake was something special, and I wanted him in my band, but I didn't have enough money to hire a sixth person. So, you know, he he played a couple shows with us <clears throat> as a sixth person, and then you know, then he shortly after that he got the Cody Cody Johnson gig. And then there's another guy named Hank Early. He played some shows with me. And he plays, you know, steel guitar and electric guitar and uh, accordion and, you know, he sings. And, you know, I I would have loved to have had him in the band. He did some shows with us, but I couldn't hire, I couldn't afford a six member uh, consistently. And then he he got on with Turnpike. He was like the, the guy that they added to the band, you know. He was like, he was their sixth member. Mm -hmm. And... um <clears throat> 
So anyway, there were, I had had that happen a couple of times where it was like, I knew somebody was exceptional, but I couldn't, I didn't have the popularity and the, the wallet to be able to reel those guys in. So it's a dilemma, right? And it eventually occurred to me that, well, dude, what if I like offered them like an even split band? Cause I don't know if a lot of people know this, but the Randy Rogers band is an even split band. Mm -hmm. And and Maybe. Randy he he talks about that sometimes. Really? Yeah. No kidding. Even on like songwriting stuff? Not on songwriting, oh, but okay. uh no, well, I, I don't know for sure. All I know is that he's he said in a few interviews and stuff that it's like even Steven, they that, that when they first started that band, they were all just equal members and they okay. were all I they're all making the same off of like live shows and stuff. Gotcha. And so I always thought that was kind of interesting because you know, Randy writes a lot of the songs and sings, does all the singing. And it's like, you know, why couldn't he have just been a solo act and paid those guys per show, you know? <clears throat> but, but I, after hanging out with the Randy Rogers guys and, and seeing their deal over, you know, they've, they've been together as a band. They've stayed together, you know, for a long time. They're, they've been together for like 20 years. And uh, one time I was on, Parker McCollum's bus with Randy, who was managing Parker at the time. Maybe mm -hmm. still does. I don't know. I don't think, yeah, I think they split up, but I think he was probably. Yeah. yeah. And so Randy was telling Parker, he was like, man, I'll tell you what, the, the key to this whole music business is the best thing about it is just brotherhood. You got to, it's, it's all about the brother. It's not about the money. It's not about the anything else. It's about the brotherhood, man. He's like my band, We've been together since day one. We've been together for 20 years. We've been together through births and deaths and sicknesses and hard times and divorces and every other thing, but we've stuck together and, you know, it's, I hope you can, he was telling Parker, I hope you can find that, you know, that, <clears throat> that brotherhood, because it makes it all worthwhile. And I just remember thinking, dang, I, I want that, you know, <clears throat> I'm, I'm, I've always been friends with my with my guys in my band, you know, but, but they're side men. I pay them per gig and, you know, I don't fault them if they go to a better paying gig, you know, or, or if, if they decide that you know, the money's not good enough, they want to do something else for a living or whatever. There's no long, there's never been a long-term commitment there. So it, it occurred to me that, well, Hey, what if I, I wonder if I could attract some of those exceptional players uh, to, to sort of join forces with me if I, if we made it an even split band, um, where everybody was equal owners, equal decision-making clout. Um, and we really, uh, did it together as a group. Mm. And, um, and so that's, I, I, I just reached out to a few different people who, who I thought, you know, I, I thought if, if they do it at first, we're not, they're probably not going to be making very much money, but there is potential in the long run if we become a turnpike troubadours, if we become uh, uh, a band on that level, that they could all all be making more than they would ever make as a sideman, even for a bigger name artist. Because there is kind of a ceiling on that, you know. Like you'd be shocked. <clears throat> That's another thing too: is you'd be shocked at so, how little some sidemen are making, even for like big name artists playing arenas. But when you really think about it, it makes sense because they could get almost anybody they want. They could get anybody they want, right? So if you don't want the job, there's there's like a thousand guitar players in Nashville that are in line yep. to take that gig for freaking peanuts. Mm -hmm. So 
there's kind of a there there are there are arena headlining. It's almost acts like who, to get there, you have to pay more. Yeah. <laughs> Until when you get there and you have the money to pay them, it's like, oh, now I don't have to. Yeah. So incredibly frustrating for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean, there are guys that when they get to that level, that arena level, they they're loyal to their bands and they take really good care of them. And and that's I think that's a good way to be. But it's also true that. If you're a solo act, like if you're Tim McGraw or whatever, <clears throat> I mean, Tim McGraw has the dance hall doctors and they've been with him for a long time. So maybe he's a bad example, but certain types of artists. It's all about that individual artists it's their name it's their face that's recognizable and let's face it the band is just kind of in the background in the shadows and they're playing their asses off but you could swap any of them out with somebody else that was great and the the crowd would never know the difference sure so there's only so much you're ever going to make as a side man but if you're a band band you know i'm talking like the eagles or the beatles or or turnpike or whatever if you're a band band then you know for one thing, if you have that equal piece of it, you're getting paid off of you're getting paid an equal piece off of whatever your band ends up doing. If your yeah. if your music gets used in film and TV, or if you're uh, if you sell a bunch of merchandise, or you know if you get a sponsorship deal or something, um, then you would participate in that, and and you could theoretically make more than you would ever make as a side man. So I thought maybe I could talk to some some people into doing that, and. I'm completely fine with giving up that ownership and control to have a better musical product, like to have a better band. Like I'm 100% okay with that. Cause I'm, I, I would, I wanted that brotherhood that Randy was talking about anyway. Like I'd, I would rather have that than to be the boss man who tells everybody what to do and can hire and fire at will. Like, you know, that I don't really care about being that guy. Some, some, some people like to, I to have that control. I don't necessarily think it's about the power element of it. It's more about the attention. So there's a lot of guys that just get off to the idea of everybody liking them, being the center of attention, getting yeah. on stage from the stage. They don't really care as much about the music or the quality of the music, but they get off on the idea of the attention. Yeah. What strikes me about you is, is that that just really doesn't get you that jazzed up? No, I mean I'm I'm married with a couple of kids, man. Yeah. I don't, I don't, I just want to make a living. I don't care if you know people think Zane Williams is hot stuff or not. Sure, sure. And you just want to make some good music and some mm -hmm. stuff that makes you feel something. I think, right? Yes. I mean that's the way I've always actually listened to your music too. Yeah. Even watching you live. Oh, dude, uh, my first, uh, my first. Man, I want to say my first date with my wife was at one of your shows. I'll be darned. I'm not positive about that. I know we went to one in Love and War mm -hmm. uh, when they had the one in Plano. Mm -hmm. but they don't, no, 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 I'm sorry. The one in Grapevine. The one in Grapevine. They don't have that one anymore. Around. And I'm pretty sure it was either our first date or it was the first time I introduced her to like some of my family. Yeah. Yours. Anyways, fun little fact. That's cool. But what I noticed, and I, I think I've seen you one other time, but you're a killer entertainer. And, and it might just be because I, I do it, or at least I try to do it, you know, at my, sure. whatever You're doing I'm it, doing, bro. sort of, You're doing uh, it. but maybe it's just because I, I have, I can identify with it a little bit, but when I watch you, I can see that there's a part that even in the entertainment thing, I don't know, I guess I've just seen guys that I can tell they're really just 
like soaking it in to a point where it's unhealthy. Cause I know like when they walk off stage and they have a conversation with somebody, they're probably not going to act very cool. They're yeah. probably not a real cool guy off stage. Right. And I can just, right. I can see it on stage. And when I like watched you and there's some other guys that I really like that I can tell that they're great entertainers and they can engage with the audience, but I can tell they're just, it's different. And when they walk off stage, you could probably have a genuine conversation with them. And you always yeah. struck me as that. Well, that's how I feel. I'm glad I come across that way. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much all I'm thinking about when I'm on stage is like, you know, <laughs> playing my guitar right and singing really good in key. Dude, I'm and just like, trying to tune. You know, smile, <laughs> smile at some people and like put on a somewhat decent show. But, um, hey, here's a question. This is maybe just specific, like hyper specific, but the idea of uh, eye contact, mm. like when people are really close and they're pressed up right there. Right. It can be weird. Yeah. Like super weird, but yeah. you have to do it. And I'm still trying to figure out that because I mean, dude, you do it, but there's a, it's maybe like second and a half. Yeah. Because you want to develop a moment. But like three <clears throat> right. seconds is like, okay, this guy's just <laughs> right. staring me down right now. Yeah. Any advice on that, on that one? I think you got to find your own path, man. On that. <laughs> Don't I tell, tell you, me that. I, there, I know some guys. So I've seen some artists who I really admire and respect, and they will not make eye contact with an audience member for any reason ever. <laughs> it's either eyes closed or it's like looking out into space above the crowd. Oh. And, you know. You're they, talking they won't even ever look down at I mean, I know some guys that it seems like they like to be in their own little world. And and I will say it is if you are kind of going to this musical place in your mind where you're just really into the music and you're really listening to what the band is doing and you're really into what you're playing and you're just 110% caught up in this musical river that's happening, it can be jarring to like look down at like some, and it's like some guy hitting on some girl or, or whatever. And whatever's happening in the crowd can take you out of that river that you were in. Sure. You know what I mean? So I don't. Or that one person that's on their phone and they like have their back to the stage. Yes. Right. It just destroys it your It brings soul. in all kinds of other thoughts, right? You think you're crushing it. <laughs> this sounds so good. And then I open my eyes and it's like, yeah. no one's even looking they, at me. Uh, they, have my, they have their back turned <laughs> to me right now. They are way more interested in that Miller light that they're ordering right now. Than, but <clears throat> I, so I do think there is good reason for, it kind of depends on what kind of music you make. If you, if you're that kind of a band that's really into the music and it's about the music, and you don't you don't even you, you know some bands that's like they don't even talk to the audience. They, they, it's almost like cool to not even deign to like acknowledge the audience at all because you're so such a cool artist. Okay, so yeah, like what, is, what is that though? Because like, I don't identify. That's with weird. That. I don't go that far. Okay, I don't I don't like to go that far, but. I, you know, some people love that. Like my old bass player was like, man, I went, I went to see Sufjan Stevens one time and he just walked onto the stage and he just played for like an hour and 15 minutes with no breaks and he never spoke a single word to the audience and then he just left and it was the best show I've ever seen. Ah! I just don't understand. And I'm like, well, 
So I'm not going to be that guy. But at the uh, the other, the flip side of that is like, I remember, so there were, back in 2008, there was a guy named Jason Michael Carroll. I mean, he's still around. He's, he's alive. He's, he's, <laughs> God he rest still his soul. exists. <laughs> uh, there was a guy. Breaking there, the news now. There is <laughs> and was a guy named Jason Michael Carroll <laughs> who recorded one of my songs. And he was on Sony at the time. And the song is called Hurry Home. And uh, anyway, he... He so I got on his radar and he he had me open a show for him in Nashville one time at the at the exit in. And I just remember, dude, the place was packed and he was like singing these love songs and he was just looking deeply into the eyes of like Okay. Everybody right. in there. I think everybody in there got an eye moment with Jason Michael Carroll. <laughs> and and sometimes that like Cause he's, he wasn't playing guitar. So it was like a hand touch or just like, he was just like reaching out and touching people and dude, they were so into it, man. But uh, I did notice that a lot of them, you know, like a lot of them were females, probably like 75% female crowd. And I think a lot of them, that's what they come to a Jason Michael Carroll show for is to like have that moment where they're like, looking deeply into his eyes as he sings this love song. Dude, here's the other thing, though. If you're in a packed crowd like that, you're married. If your wife's standing side stage and you're doing that, yeah. I don't know. I know the way my wife is. She yeah. probably wouldn't dig that very much. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't even, I don't know. Could you get away with doing that? Me, personally, no, no. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't even yeah. know for sure if Jason... <laughs> is married or not, or was married. I don't know. But I just remember being struck by how, like, where, where a lot of artists shy away from eye contact, he was, like, fully embracing the eye contact. And how long? Could and you tell how long it. he was, like, digging in? I mean, the whole entire song, <laughs> he was looking at somebody's eyes. He was just going from person to person and singing it, like, to them. And wow. like I said, it was, it was really cool, but it, it's also... I think that's the spectrum, and you got to ask yourself, where do you fall on the Sufjan spectrum all the way to the Jason Michael Carroll spectrum? Where where are you at? And I'm comfortable in the middle, man. I I I'm like, if it's a it depending on what the song is, if it's a song that especially maybe is a little bit more challenging for me to play and sing, and I just or if it's a song that's really groovy and jamming, and I just want to listen to the band, I'll close my eyes and I'll ignore the audience. I and I. I allow myself that little selfish pleasure to just ignore the audience and yeah. not not even let them interrupt my stream of consciousness for for a little while. But then I try to have some like up tempo fun songs where I am just being goofy and like entertaining the crowd and you know cheers and a beer with them or fist bumping them or um, I mean I can definitely be that guy too. And in my old show as Zane Williams, ninety nine bottles of beer was that oh, was yeah. that song where. I'd freaking high five every person in the crowd and jump up on a table and sing. And here's a question while you're playing a show, if it feels like they're not quite that engaged, like I've noticed that if they aren't engaged, if I just develop this little world with my band and sort of become a little reclusive, like if I start putting myself out there tell a couple stories, tell a couple jokes. It's just not landing. Mm -hmm. If I get a little bit more reclusive and just have a moment with my band, we just start jamming, enjoying each other's music, that sort of thing. It's a weird thing where some of those crowds will suddenly be like, 
they'll become more of a part of it. Kind of attracted. Yeah. Have you noticed that at all? Or is that odd? <sighs> I don't know. The main thing I've noticed, I don't know if I've ever noticed that. The main thing I've noticed is that people respond right to music that they're familiar with. So like for me, the main thing, you know, is to, if I want to draw them back in is to just go ahead and kick off a song that I know for sure that uh, a fair number of them probably know. Uh, and with the Zane Williams show that we used to do, we, we did some cover songs. We actually did like a medley. We did a nineties medley of nineties country songs. And we did a, what I called the fiddle medley of country songs with great fiddle parts and both of those medleys were like the crowd was just in the palm of our hand for those because it's just song after song that they know and love yeah. and it'll just get them right up front rocking out and screaming and shouting my problem was is that then after that we have to go follow it up with one of our original ones that they don't know and you lose them and then then that makes you want to turn yourself into just a cover band and just you know cut the ties with all of your artistic hopes and dreams yeah you can't go down that road wow this actually makes me feel better yeah (laughs) people the way the best way to get people fired up is to play a song that they know and love sure and they will people respond the best to especially if it's like a noisy bar environment like it's different if it's a listening room like if it's a listening room you can uh, almost bomb playing stuff that they know Yes. In the listening room. Right. Too. Listening room is different. If if it's a listening room, you can play a song that they've literally never heard once in their life and you can like bring them to tears yeah. or just completely blow their minds or make them laugh, you know, whatever you, you, that's, I think that's why listening rooms, um, have kind of been my forte in the past because I do have the ability to make people laugh, make people cry and, and really affect them emotionally, even if they've never heard that song before. And so that's, that's a certain thing that you can do in a listening room. But then if you try that in a noisy, like dance hall or sports bar, you know, most of the time it just doesn't land because they're just not paying close enough attention. And so the, to me, the definition of a hit song is a song that you can like groove to and get into even though you're not listening to it that closely because you already know it or it's just that catchy. And that's, I think a lot of hit songs, part of the reason that catchy now, songs. Hold on though. What's what, how do you define a hit song? Cause we're going to like measure success, I guess. Right. Yeah. I mean, to me, a hit is just a super popular song. So I think most hits are really catchy which is to say that um, you can kind of get the gist of the song and get into it and feel like won over by the song, like feel like you like that song, even when you weren't paying all that close of attention to it. Like you, Because I have a lot of songs that aren't that way, where you have to kind of listen to the whole thing all the way through to really get the power of it. And that's, uh, you know, it's hard to have a hit with that kind of a song. Like I have one called Pablo Maria. And it's like five and a half minutes long and it's like, it's slow. It's a story song. And if you just kind of like turned on your radio and it was just in the middle of that song and you were like talking to your friend in the car and you weren't even really paying attention, I don't think that song would really grab you as much as like. Sure. But what's funny is like, if you were driving down the road talking to your friend 
Like you're probably being honest with yourself. It probably wouldn't grab you, right? Right. So you're just like being honest with. What I don't, the, I don't what think I actually, would. I wouldn't really. I wouldn't really hear the story and really get it. Sure. You have to kind of listen to that song from beginning to end because there's an arc of the story and it's, you know, you got to give it five and a half minutes of your life to really get it. Whereas there are tons of songs that, uh, that I recognize and am really familiar with that, uh, that I think of as being hits where I couldn't even really tell you what the, the person's even saying in the verses. I don't yeah, even really think about it, but it's just got such a catchy beat and such a catchy, like maybe instrumental hook or chorus. chorus I love hook. that you use the word catchy, like mo especially in the Texas format. It's as I, you use the word catchy. It's like a dirty word. Mm hmm. Which I don't understand. And I I usually, I'm not saying that I'm like some like veteran of songwriting. I'm still trying to figure stuff out and make some things happen. But when I talk to some younger dudes uh, and I tell them like, look, man, we're all writing pop songs. Structurally, or like the way that we're moving a melody, the way that it, the whole format of the song goes, the way we're delivering a hook, they're freaking pop songs. Yeah. It just kind of is what it is. And most of us, for the most part, uh, are trying to develop a catchy, memorable. So like for me, catchy means like memorable. For a lot of people, it's right. a super dirty word. It's like you're taking advantage of somebody or something. Oh, yeah. Because I've played songs for people and they'll be like, I mean, it's catchy. Right. I'm like, well, that's the point. What do you... Right. <laughs> yeah, so... So I, how do you like... Because I like the story stuff too. I love like the whole Guy Clark, Robert right. Earl. I love that. But then also, like I like a tight, concise pop song that sounds nice. Right. Grooves. Right. Good hook. So how do you like meld those two together? Yeah, exactly. Oh, That's you don't have question. the, I thought you would have the answer. Well, <laughs> no, I don't have the answer. I, I will tell you, I think, I do think my favorite music melds substance with catchiness together. It has both of those qualities. And so that's, I think the best of the best. But it is true that there is, I think the reason some people consider catchy a dirty word is because there does seem to be, a, in, in some instances, it's not always true, but there is somewhat of a trade-off between, I would say, authenticity and catchiness. So if, if uh, like there's a certain type of song that is kind of rambly and it sounds like it's like basically somebody's diary entry just spilled out as a song and there's no hook at all. But what that sounds, that sounds really authentic though. You see what I'm saying? Why? Because it doesn't sound planned out. It doesn't sound formulaic. The thing with catchy is that it's usually simple and repetitive, right? Catchy, memorable, as you said, memorable. What's the best way to be memorable? Simple and repetitive that's it so the the simpler more repetitive you get that usually comes at the cost of lyrical depth let's mm. say right so like i like, like that but you said sometimes sometimes right because i mean like there are exceptions where there there are some songs that are that have that i think have lyrical depth but that also are very very memorable and um, that's, to me, that's the gold standard that, you, that you're shooting for. But I can understand why 
you know, I mean, hey, there are some artists that uh, they would even think that uh, just being popular is is a dirty word, is bad. And um, for that for that kind of artist, I think yeah, you should avoid being catchy and memorable. Just be forgettable. You know? Yeah, like yeah. What's <laughs> if you the don't, if you literally think that being popular is bad. I mean, I think I think the alternative for some people is to just be sort of a, you know, the sort of a, a a tortured soul artist that hardly anybody knows, but like maybe a few people like really appreciate or whatever, and that can be cool too. Uh, there's a lot of people who try that that are bad, uh, or that come across as bad in my book. It's all subjective. There are a few of them who I think there are a few people who write what I consider they write songs that blow me away, but that are not catchy songs and they never got that popular. But people like that are kind of rare. There's a lot more people that just aren't very good and that's why they never got popular. And they just, they're just, it's, the, the metaphors aren't very good. The melodies aren't very good. That's the problem. I like, I do think there's a, that's the thing about art is it's subjective, but man, there is such a thing as imagery. There is such a thing as metaphor. I mean, there is such a thing as language. Can you use it? Are you good at using language? Like, I'm sorry, but the, there is such a thing as saying something well. Like to me, a great song like paints this beautiful, interesting, perfect picture that really rings true or really like turns you on in some way uh, with just a few perfect words, you know, like almost the simpler, the better. But then that's where I, that's where I get back to that. There can be a, a trade off between catchy and 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 substance but there doesn't have to be it is possible to do both dude not to like stroke your ego but the like a great example of that is uh that palomino gold song so there's a kid that sells merch for me and drives the van and stuff and he's mm -hmm. tried to write some tunes he's like 19 and so he'll read me some lyrics and stuff and it would it'll be like you know, I walked in the room and she was a bitch you know that kind of thing and it's like well what type of room was it yeah. What did, what was the, when you walked in, what was the light like? Right. Like, and that to me is the songwriting part of it. Not just, I walked in the room. Well, how did the door feel in your hand? Right. right? And so Palomino gold, it's like, man, and I showed him that song. I was like, here's an example. And it's adjectives, right? It's like, uh, um, how does that start? Like, well, for one, the melody, cause it's so catchy. Not on the free river that ripple over. Beautiful melody. And like when you say in ripples over smooth gray stones, yeah. it's like, I mean, how many adjectives is that? Right. It's like three. Or no, it's a verb. Ripples over uh, smooth eyes, gray stones. Eyes like the pools of the Frio River. Eyes like the pools of the Frio River. Where like, it ripples over smooth gray Dude, give me a freaking stones. break. Yeah. That's insane. And yeah. so I showed him that. And it was, it was more like, and so I, I told him like eyes, all you have there is like you have eyeballs and you have stones. And then you use a simile in the middle, like her ass. And I'm like, dude, this is like, this is sixth grade English class. Right. What type of eyes? Like the Frio River. Right. That song was weird for me because essentially, like all we're really talking about here is eyes and hair. 
Like it could be easy for that song to just be like not or not no, exactly work. That's like the brilliance. Yeah. That's that's what's so great is because you could take a a simple and I remember doing it in like middle school English class where they would say, Here's the color gray. It was creative writing. Like, write me something about the color gray. And then you would just go down this whole rabbit hole of that. And that's what that right. is. Girl's hair. I mean, how many times have you heard a stupid song about a girl's hair? Right. But that one, I mean, the depth in there. And then you start applying, yeah, just the imagery and anyways. Yeah. I'm not going to stroke your ego anymore. Mm-hmm. But I did I did uh, use it as an example for him to, like, understand how all that works. It's freaking yeah. beautiful. It's great. And then you have the whole other component of the melody. And, like, you don't, right. those words don't come across the way they do without that melody. Right. And then you have the guitar part. Right. I know. It's like in the production of that. That's why songwriting is so hard is because you're juggling. You have to, it has to be firing on a bunch of different cylinders. And so to me, a great song has great lyrics, uh, also a great melody, and they have to be seamless together. And then also it has a great groove. And then also it has a great production where it's just the right, the, the guitars are playing just the right part with just the right tone and just the right feel. And I mean, it just takes so long to just get really good at all that stuff. But you're doing the right thing even with, with showing him that stuff because that's what you got to do is you got to at least be trying to get there you know it's like so it's 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 a lot of things to think about at once and what i've learned is it's it's like it's good if you can um do it so much that a few of those things just almost come naturally by on autopilot you know what i mean so it's like you've um maybe you've you've written so many songs that have such a such a they have a good groove that Next time, as soon as you start up a melody and, and a lyric, you're not even really thinking about the groove, but it, it turns out it has a really good groove that the band can really groove to, but you weren't even really necessarily thinking about that. For me, I start, I've start. i always started off as coming from a lyric standpoint, and I never really thought about groove. And so I've had to learn groove. I learned groove second or third, but eventually, over after time with playing with the band, I did learn, or I have learned, I'm still learning, um, groove, how important groove is. I think it's really more of a groove world than it is a lyric world anyway. I'm a lyricist living in a groove world. Ah, there you, you go, dude. Hey, that's, there's that's you some the merch. Truth. That's some new merch right there for that's sure. That's the truth. If you don't do it, I'm going to steal it. <clears> so <laughs> It's the same thing as the the catchy and the substance. It's like... You got to do both. Well, it's the same thing with lyrics and groove. You got to, the best music does both, but it's, it's, that's a lot of balls to be juggling at once when you're, uh, when you're, you know, writing a song, which is essentially making some stuff up. And so it, it, um, you know, the, the best way to do it, it it's, it, our brains are capable of doing things that are super complicated, but just, doing it intuitively, like our brains are capable of super complicated actions and thoughts and stuff um, intuitively. So some people, the way that they get there is not by overthinking it, but by just feeling it real hard and, and thinking thinking about the music that they love. 
and how it makes them feel. And then just doing stuff that feels good. And then it just happens to have, because it feels good to them, it, it checks all those boxes. Other people are a little bit more aware of the techni of the technical things that are going on underneath the hood. And I'm, I'm a little bit more that way. I, I think about melody and I think about groove. And So were you clumping melody into like sort of a similar category as groove? Because you said you typically start more lyrically based. Yeah. So are you pushing melody a little bit more over into another category or is that along with lyric? Um, I, they are all obviously interwoven because your melody is going to, your melody is in many ways going to determine your groove. They, mm -hmm. they, they're definitely, they have to be married, but, but I do, I guess in my mind, I kind of think of, you got a lyric you got a melody and then you've got a, a groove. I think of those as kind of being three separate but related intertwined things because what you can do is you can, like I've had it happen before where uh, I really like the the lyric and the melody, let's say, but let's say I don't really like the groove. Like I, we, I wrote this song called Feeling the Miles and um, it's uh, – I just dig that song. Oh, That's yeah, it's pretty cool. <laughs> so the original version of that song came out very mm, kind of James Taylor-y feeling. And it when we went to the studio, it was like we the, the band loved it, but they didn't know. It wasn't really clear what the band could even play on it. And I was wishing that it had a good groove and a good, a cool bass part and a good drum part and just I was just I didn't want another song that sounded like a singer songwriter song where the, the band just kind of tries to stay out of the way and not play too much I wanted like I wanted yeah. to turn it into a band song so I actually rewrote that song but I used the same lyric and mostly the same melody but I just I actually did have to change the melody some but I basically rewrote that song, same lyrics, but completely rewrote the the groove and the melody is different, so that it so that it had that groove that we ended up with. And my wife hates it, or no, she didn't hate it. What? She no, my wife was a little freaked out about. It. She let's not let's not. Well, because like I can, so it she was likes the original version far slower. The original one, the probably. original one was far you slower. You would have. It would have been real finger picky and slow, right? A little rolling finger pick thing. Mm -hmm. Didn't know where I knew where this was headed. Okay, so but did you start with? Did you By still the way, have that? Hideout members can hear the alternative version at See, that's thewilderblue.com. Cool. <laughs> and that's a badass radio voice. <laughs> Do that again. Hideout members can see thewilderblue.com right now. The alternative version, feeling the miles. Also, could you could probably be like a rodeo announcer too. Yeah, I ain't got time. <laughs> ain't nobody got time for that. Maybe <laughs> that could be my plan F. Plan, plan, yeah, plan F. <laughs> so, so did you, did you have that? So you probably got a chorus pedal and some reverb on that acoustic, right? On the, on the recorded version, like on the studio version? Um, feeling the miles i well so i didn't when i was recording it i don't know what all because it's real spacey we put on it sounds amazing after the after the fact yeah i don't know what all so that we we recorded that as a band and 
We recorded it in Denton at the Echo Lab uh, with Matt Pence Engineering, but we just basically self-produce, and our drummer, Lyndon, really does the most, um, and he mixed it. And so it was probably a combination between Matt Pence and Lyndon putting some mojo on that. I don't know for sure what all they put on it. I was I had my hands full just trying to play the part right. It seems like you actually made a you sung sung is that the right he sung you sung different sang different how do I say that maybe sang different <laughs> you seem to have had a different vibe singing in that yeah. than I've ever heard before especially when you go into that chorus part because you're like halfway like mixed voice like yeah. falsetto kind of thing and I've never really yeah. heard you do that especially like in a lower register which I thought was cool yeah and it gives the whole song like a uh, like an earnestness that. Yeah, because it kind of wanted to groove and had had a like super grooving '70s thing, and then the way that you sang it had more of like a really subtle uh, like singer songwriter thing. I thought that was mm. a cool juxtaposition. I practiced that word on the way here. Cool, nice. <laughs> yeah, I, I we recorded that all the tape, um, and that was our first foray into like no Pro Tools recording. Since then, we've kind of landed on, we normally, most of the rest of the stuff that's going to be on this next record, we recorded like drums and bass to tape, pretty much all in one take, and then we do the overdubs of everything else to tape, but then bounce it to Pro Tools. Um, but Feeling the Miles was all to tape, and it it was it's fun to do that uh, you know the difference for people that aren't familiar with the technicality of it is because you're recording to a, a reel of tape you only have a certain number of channels and so you have to kind of decide like uh, we were kind of short on channels so it's like uh well let's put the the tambourine and this harmony part both on the same channel right you know it's like you got to kind of do them together on one channel and which means that you don't have separate volume control or, or EQ or whatever on, on those two things. So you're limited on channels and it's also a lot harder to, um, you can do what's called punching in where like if you did the whole thing right, but you, you, let's say you messed up the beginning of the second verse, you can fix that. But usually, but, but what you can't do that you could do on Pro Tools on the computer is on on Pro Tools you could just like grab that little section and scooch it to the right to make it be in time, or you could tune it, or you could copy and paste it to the other section, and you can pretty much you can you can do whatever you want to it. Uh, you could even pitch shift it to be a different pitch or whatever. Uh, and on tape you you can't do that. It's pretty much uh, like if you're being strict about it, the way we were on that song, it was which was tape only then basically all they can do is punch you in at one part and then punch you back out so you can fix that one part. And then other than that, uh, you played what you played. And then and then we bounced that down to the computer and then you we mixed it after that, but we didn't do any tuning or, or copying and pasting or anything. Yeah, so, that's so that was fun. The most raw, unedited version that you could that you could get other than literally live. Yes. And what's cool about that is it's um, 
How many takes? You have to make own? decisions. So like on the thing is with, if you're recording onto a computer, you're just like, I'll, I'll just do 20 takes of this and then we'll figure it out later. And then later somebody has to come along and listen to every single take and like comp, comp together a part, which means you take your favorite sections from each take. Like if you played the whole song 10 times through, you take the first verse from this or even just the first line from this or the first half of the first line or this syllable of this from this and you just piece it and you have you end up with this frankenstein thing that sounds pretty perfect from that's taken from like 10 different takes that's called comping well it's easy to do that on the computer but on tape you have to basically decide was that the take or was that not the take and if it was then we're good if it was not then do we need to punch just a certain part or do we need to start again from the beginning and just try it again? So did you say the whole record was to tape? Just some you bounced that, into? That song was all to tape, okay. Feeling the Miles. Okay. And so like that particular song, how, I mean, roundabout, how long, how many takes with that type of thing? <sighs> um, I do remember it took us like three days to get that song completely done. Um, so... Uh, as far as like full band takes, how many we did, I don't know, probably like eight or 10 at least, or 10 or 15. And then you have to take one of those. And then we and pretty then. much, yeah, we pretty much, well, what we did is pretty much with bass and drums, we pretty much picked one. I think, I think it's one drum part all the way through. We have a badass drummer. So Lyndon, shout out to Lyndon Hughes. We pretty much we we pretty much keep doing takes until he's happy, and when he's happy, then our bass player. If if there was a note or two that he got wrong, it's pretty easy to punch him in and fix that. And then we've got the rhythm track, and then and then you can go, then you can go part by part and record the tape. You can you can go part by part, but you just can't copy and paste stuff, and you can't. You can't like now you know you can't and you 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 can't uh, you can't record like ten different takes and then save them all for later. You don't have that many channels. It's it's just the part. So if you want to, if you didn't like your second verse, you got to punch the second verse. But when it's done, that's your you, that's it. You so don't have twenty takes. Were y'all just like wanting to go? Were y'all wanting to challenge yourselves, or was it for like a general vibe that you were going for, or like why even put yourself through that? Right, because <laughs> it's already. I mean, most people don't know how strenuous just recording is. Right, even with all the bells and whistles and fancy stuff that you can do, it's still a freaking nightmare. Right. So our motivation number one was we like how tape sounds. So and I and that's why we still do. Drums and bass to tape for sure, and the other stuff if we can. But especially drums and bass seem to, I don't know, They it's subtle, but they have sort of a little bit of a vibe if you record the tape. So that was one reason was the sound. Second reason was to challenge ourselves, yeah. And then the third reason, because it's like, we're going to have to play it live anyway. We need to learn this song. We need to be able to play it consistently. We need to play it great at a consistent level. So if we have to play it a million times, so be it. Um, and then the third thing, though, is um, we had just never done it before. We just kind of wanted to prove to ourselves that we could because a lot of the records that we love are from the 70s, and they didn't have Pro Tools back in the 70s. So it's kind of like, it's almost like this, like, 
could we do it? Can we do it? Are we good enough? Are we like, because if you've your whole, it's almost like if you've ridden a bike with training wheels your whole life, you're like, could I ride a bike with no training wheels? I think I could, but what happens? I've never taken them off. I don't know. And then it's like, we took them off and it's like, okay, yeah, actually we can do this. We, it's, it was fun. You know, were y'all even like worried about failing at it though? I mean, I wasn't, I personally favor a kind of music that's not super slick and perfect anyway. So I wasn't too worried about it being a little bit raw, you know, like a vocal out of tune here and there doesn't bother me all that much as long as it's a emotional performance and a vibey performance. Um, some people are really, really bugged by a vocal that's just a little bit out of tune or a guitar part that's just a little bit rushed or, you know, little, little things like that. Um, I wasn't too worried about it. I figured we could probably do it. I knew, cause like I said, you can still do multiple takes. It's not like one take. So one take would be the hardest, right? That's the highest level of thing. And that's what, that's what you're going for I with, cannot even wrap with your live show. That. That's well know, true. Yeah. You know, if you make a live record, that's, even live records, there's ways to cheat. I mean, or not cheat, oh, but just yeah. you can record 10 shows and take the best recording of each song. Just which which one of the 10 shows did you do that yeah, particular song? Yeah, but still, aren't the there? There's a bunch of post-production that happens on those, You right? can do, you can do, yes. You can do all that stuff. <laughs> I didn't know that for the longest I time. I wouldn't. Well, but, sure, sure. But, but I, some of these people I've listened to, and I'm like, how do they sound like that? This is insane. Mm-hmm. And then you're like, oh, okay. Man, with the Wilder Blue, our goal is to just sound like that. Y'all do. That's just how, that's the goal is to be that, that's just how we sound. Also, I don't know, is, is but Paul, that's hard. That's, is Paul Easton the one playing Dobro? Who's playing Dobro? No, that's Andy Rogers. Andy Rogers plays Dobro, banjo. He plays acoustic guitar on a couple, but mostly dobro. Because like it's banjo. not very often that you hear a full band with the dobro that sounds that good. Yeah, it sounds good. Yeah, and and he's he was my bass player in my old band, so he plays bass as well. Was he really? Yeah. Huh. Just a seamless transition over there. Yeah, like he was. When I when I put <laughs> when I put the Wilder Blue together, I called Paul, and then we got Lyndon. So we had. Paul plays electric guitar and acoustic guitar and mandolin, and then Lyndon plays drums. And so we got together with Andy, who was my bass player, and we did some demos as a four-piece. And Andy recorded bass, and then he was he pulled out his banjo and his dobro and recorded those as well. And we just loved his bass play. I mean, his banjo playing and dobro play. We loved it all, but we it was just way easier, we realized, to find another bass player than it would be to find somebody who could play dobro and banjo like that and mandolin and guitar and sing. So that's, so Andy got moved uh, from the bass to the other and he's, he's a little bitter about it. He loves the bass, man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, But he's like, he's playing a quintessential part of y'all's sound. I know. I know he's, he's much, I tell you, he's much more of a rock star in the position he is, but I think he just has to think a lot more. You know, it's it's harder for him to play the dobro and the banjo and all that stuff. And bass, he just loves the bass, man. He loves the groove and 
and just uh, get down on the bass. But, but, um, so in terms of songwriting, are you, are you, do you still actively pursue having people cut some of your tunes or what's kind of that process for you? Like, do you have a publishing deal or like what? I do not right now. So I, I do not work very hard at trying to get other people to record my songs. I mainly write songs like for my band nowadays, pretty much what I do. But there've been times in the past, you know, for, for a couple of years, uh, I guess 2006 to 2008, I had a publishing deal and lived in Nashville and that's all I did was write songs and pitch them. Are we uh, talking like nine to five kind of gig? Yeah. Just writing songs. Yeah. Okay. I lived, I lived on music row. Um, and from, and in, it's like, like I said, it was about 2006 to 2008. I would just, uh, my publishing company was like two blocks down the street on 17th Avenue. And I would just walk down the street to my publishing company, sit in a room every day and just try to write a song five days a week, Monday through Friday, trying to write a song. And then my publisher would pitch those songs to other people. And uh, the only one that ever got recorded was that Jason Michael Carroll doing that hurry home. Um, but since then, since I've been in Texas, my main focus is writing stuff for myself. And then it's kind of like if I put something out that some other artist hears at some point and they dig it and they want to record it, that's cool. A lot of people don't really know how that works. But basically, if I write a song and I record it, if somebody else wants to come along and record it, for one thing, they don't even need my permission. They can, as long as it's been released to the public before by any artist, then they don't need permission. They just, they do have to send the money to me as a songwriter, but they don't have to actually have permission. So like if I want to record a Beatles song, sure, I have to send money to Paul McCartney or whoever wrote it, but I don't have to have Paul McCartney's permission. Um, and so, but that's different. It's different if it's the first time it's ever been recorded. So if I'm, a, if I write a song, like if I wrote a song today, then, you know, you can't just record it unless you have my permission, right? So, and then that allows songwriters to have the power to control who gets to record it the first time. And they can pitch it to Tim McGraw and he can put it on hold. And then if he doesn't want it, they can pitch it to somebody else. And they have that control. It seems like in the old school Texas uh, music world, there was a lot more of cross-pollination mm -hmm. with that type of stuff that doesn't really exist that much anymore. Right, I know. I also feel like the stories I always heard was like after a show, like everybody kind of hang out. And right. Like, most of the cats I go play with, like I don't meet them. Nobody talks to anybody. Right. Which I've always thought is a little bit odd. It seems like a lot less of a community. If you're, especially if you're talking about like the seventies back when it was like Jerry Jeff, yeah, and Gary P. Nunn played in Jerry Jeff's band. And then they all, you know, Ray Wiley was hanging out with them. And then Guy Clark and Towns Van Zant were in the mix and Willie would come into town and record some of their songs and they would record his song and he would record that doesn't happen record at all, everybody's man. songs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, miss I won't that. say it all, but I, I vote for that coming back. Huh? Why do you think that changed? Mm, um, I don't know. It could be, I know for me, the main thing that's holding me back from being doing more of that is that I just don't live in a music town. Um, so like, 
I live in McKinney because it's where my family lives, where my parents and my in-laws live. And we like our kids to be close to the grandparents. And especially when I'm on the road, it helps. So I guess if I lived in Austin or Nashville, I would do more of that. I think I'm about to run to the bathroom. Y'all been feeding me, feeding me beer. Yeah, dude, you're all good. Uh, I mean, we can end it now too, if you want to, if we got to run home. I think the batteries on the camera are about to die too. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're, we're reaching the bottom. Oh, we're reaching. Okay. Well, um, man, I, I would like for that community to come back and I would like it for it to come back where people just recorded a great song just cause it was a great song and, and a great song could get recorded by multiple artists and, and, uh, and where we would all just kind of like do shows together and hang out and like, I, that's that's my goal with the Wilder Blue. Like I, I write a lot of the songs, but I would love to. I'm always on the lookout for young, or it doesn't matter if they're young or old. Just singer songwriters in Texas, other artists. Obviously, I don't want to record somebody else's current radio single, maybe, but sure. but like you know. I want to record like a John Bauman song sometime. I, I'd like to record a, a a Robert Earl Keane song. I'd like to record a Towns Van Zandt song. I'd like to record a Radney Foster song, a Steve Earle song. I'd hey, like to do all that. Why don't we do a uh, – I want to do a Marty Robbins, uh, that whole Gunfighter ballads. Yeah. I want to do that entire record. <laughs> nice. So why don't you just do Instead that Instead of covering me. a song, just cover an entire the record. The entire album. <laughs> we can just go down the list. We okay. can do every person. All right. Will you do at least a song with me whenever I do the Marty Robbins one? I'm going to do it. That sounds good. Okay. Yeah. You'll do a song with me? Yeah. Okay. I have you on record now telling me. Okay. That's what All right. What one would it be? Man, I would... I'd have to listen to that, and then I feel like there's... I'd have to make sure... I don't know. Like There have been some people that have been re-recording some of those songs uh -huh. here lately. It's gotten a weird like resurgence. A little bit of a resurgence... We cover, uh, in our set, I do Master's Call. I don't know if you've heard that. No. But on your way home, listen to Master's Call. All right. Because that knocked my socks off the first time I heard it. Cool. It's a little bit weird in the middle of like a rowdy, ruckus crowd to do Master's Call. Yeah. You'll get it once you hear it. But I like to get weird. Hopefully you dig it. Maybe we can do that one together. Yeah. Yeah. I know, dude. Well, thanks for coming in, man. Yeah. Yeah, see you.